Welcome to the CareCast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to uh, this uh, CareCast. And I'm here with Dr. Gillian Wright, who is a researcher for uh, Care Not Killing. Care Not Killing is an umbrella organisation, a coalition of groups who are uh, opposed to any change in the law when it comes to assisted suicide and euthanasia. And uh, recently, or certainly very shortly, uh, Care Not Killing will be launching a brand new uh, grassroots campaign with our duty of care to encourage doctors and healthcare professionals uh, to join uh, that campaign against any change in the law. Uh, Dr. Gillian Wright, thank you for joining us on the CareCast. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, where are you from, uh, Gillian? I start there. Wh- which part of Scotland are you from? I'm from Glasgow, from the west of Scotland. Fantastic. So just for everyone watching or listening, we've got a East Coast, West Coast divide happening right now. I'm from Edinburgh on the East Coast, and Gillian from the West Coast. There's not going to be any Glasgow, Edinburgh problems on this on this podcast. Absolutely not. There's 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 only ever uh, one one place that you should be. So. <laughs> Fantastic. And we're going to talk about um, end of life issues. We're going to talk about assisted suicide and euthanasia. And actually, let's just start there. Uh, people use different terms when it comes to this debate. You'll hear the term assisted dying used a lot. So I wondered if you could just talk us through the key terms and. Is there a difference? Do they don't they all just basically mean the same thing? Uh, they don't actually, and it's I think it's a really helpful place to start. So, assisted suicide is when the doctor um, prescribes a medication such as a barbiturate, something that we would use perhaps at a low dose for seizures, but they prescribe at a high dose, um, and they give it to the patient at their request. Um, so that they can take it at a time of their choosing. So it's very much the doctor assisting the person uh, to commit suicide. Um, euthanasia is quite different because it involves both the prescription so and the administration. And so usually it involves the administration of a lethal injection. And so you can see how that could be both voluntary and involuntary. So they are quite different. Uh, Assisted suicide is just the prescription and euthanasia is both prescription and administration. And quite often at the moment we hear the term assisted dying and that tends to encompass both. And I I think it is sometimes misleading and it does help to use the two distinctly um, because assisted dying could mean a number of things, whereas assisted suicide and euthanasia are are much more clear. Um, And at present, both of those are illegal in the UK, um, but there have been a number of bills before Parliament over the last 20 or so years um, asking that um, they might come into force, um, but so far have been resisted. Um, One of the things that that kind of complicates this issue as well, just from a policy perspective, is that the Scottish Parliament can legislate in this area under its own autonomy, and then the Westminster Parliament can do so for England and Wales. So you could have multiple attempts at the same time. That's happened before. And there does seem to be, if you you are on Twitter at all, you're watching the news, uh, a growing pressure to uh, change the law, both in Scotland and down in England and Wales as well. What what do you think is driving uh, this increased support or apparent increased support for changing the law to legalise some form of assisted suicide? 
I think that's a really interesting question, and I think there are probably a number of factors. Um, I think there's a one of the main factors is that death is scary, and I think all of us, or maybe most of us, or all of us, at sometimes will feel anxious about about death. And so, when you're actually facing death, that can be really difficult. Um, and I think. People are scared not only of death itself, but also of the process of dying. And so the concerns about whether there might be pain or suffering or in perceived indignity, although that may not be the case. Um, I think people have, have real concerns about that. Um, and I think also that comes alongside changes in our society. So we have noticed probably over the last 50 years or so that the perspectives in our society have changed so people are much more used to choosing things they're much more used to their rights it's much more consumerist society if you if you like whereas perhaps 50 years ago it would be a much more duty-based or um doing things for other people um community-based and so this this kind of sense of autonomy or patient autonomy um, has really marked medicine, often in very good ways, um, but I think it has in some ways collided with this concern about death um, in, and ignited this debate yet, yet again. The funny thing about death, you know, death's always been part of being human. It's not new. Yeah. Why, why do you think, given that there's been such increases, for example, in medical technology and medical understanding, uh, death seems scarier than ever. Uh, wh why do you think that is? That's, that's, that's an interesting point. I th it, it, there's probably a number of reasons. I think we're in an increasingly secular society, so I think there's less assurance or reassurance about death. Um, and also people, I think there's less of the extended family in the sense. So people are perhaps maybe more isolated at times. Um, and I, I think I was mindful of coming to, to do this cast with you that there might be people listening who are anxious about their own situation. And in this time of social isolation, of social distancing, there may be people who find discussions about assisted suicide quite upsetting. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I would be, I suppose, encouraging of people that if they do find this discussion upsetting or stressful that they should really find someone kind to talk to. Um, if these thoughts are going through your mind, then please do talk to a friend or a neighbour, the Samaritans, that there, there will be someone who would be glad to talk to you. Um, so I, I, I'm just mindful of that as we embark on what is an abstract concept in some situations, a policy decision, if you like, um, but to other people who are facing really difficult situations, it's very much a family situation. And I, I would just urge people to be, um, be quick to ask for help. Mm. That's really helpful. Thank you, uh, Gillian. And um, just going back on, on that, that point you raised around uh, autonomy and this cultural shift that's taken place from a maybe a duty-based attitude towards a, my rights becomes the dominant thing. Um, this is the argument we hear again and again. It's in newspaper columns, it's on the radio, it's on TV. This is the argument for changing the law and allowing doctors to prescribe that, that medication to help someone end their life. It's my right to choose how I die. And I'm just curious, what, what would you say 
to that argument, to someone who was saying to you, this is all well and good, Gillian, but it should be my choice, uh, what I get to do at the end of, end of my life. What would you say to that argument? Well, I think it's, it's complicated in some senses. I think, um, I think it's really important to listen to where they're coming from. I think people have um, a whole situation and a story that is really important for us to listen to and not just dismiss. Um, but I also would really want them to think about what is important about choice. And choice has... Um, marked modern medicine in a way so patient choices are hugely important and it's changed medicine in a good way so I think doctors must respect patient decisions and patients input their opinions and their background and it, it has changed medicine from a kind of relentless paternalism of this is best for you because I know best and that's really really a good place to have come away from if you like um, but I suppose I'm concerned that we would get to the stage where choices are limited and even in normal life we don't have unlimited choice so what I do affects you what I do affects my family um, and we accept that we accept that we can't do everything we want and if we live in a community then my choices affect other people and it even just in a practical sense, when we go out and drive a car and um, we put our seatbelts on, we, uh, we stop at the red light, you know, because because we know it's it's the next person's turn, um, and and we accept that all these this give and take is part of the society. So I suppose my argument would be that we're used to safeguards, if you like, we're used to safety decisions. The question is where that and if there is deemed that there is a harm to other people, then I think you have to draw a line there. It's, it's so helpful to be reminded of the fact that in our day-to-day -day lives, we, we accept limits. And I suppose just thinking about the last 12 months, I mean, surely Absolutely. if there's ever been a season where we've had to accept limits for yeah. the benefit of others, it, it's been the, the, the coronavirus pandemic. You, you've actually argued uh, in, in letters to uh, newspapers up in Scotland, for example, um, that if we legalised assisted suicide, so if we did change the law, that would actually reduce the autonomy of the most vulnerable uh, in our communities. I wonder if you could just explain what, what, what you meant by that. Yes, I suppose I'm concerned that there might be a very small number of people who would want um, assisted suicide or euthanasia and campaign for that. But I think as as a doctor, I think you have to be res responsible and consider all the people that also might be in the ward and the effect it might have on, on them. And I suppose I'm, I'm really concerned when you look at say a country like Belgium where, where euthanasia has been legalised since 2002 and you look at their rates of involuntary euthanasia so that's when there's no explicit request for euthanasia at all so a patient who's perhaps confused or unconscious and the doctor has administered a lethal injection and they have evidence, they, they document that their rates of involuntary euthanasia are about 1.7%. So that's one in 60 deaths. And so I suppose I'm concerned that 
the familiarity with taking life would lead us to the stage where it becomes acceptable that those sorts of things would happen. And Belgium's not a million miles away. It's not so different societally in structure, um, but they've just accepted it for, for a considerable number of years. And so that, that's one aspect that there would be a, an involuntary euthanasia. But there's also a second aspect in that I think people would feel pressure. Mm. So I think there's a lot of older folk or people who are weary and tired and struggling with their illness who just feel that they're becoming a burden on their family and their friends. And certainly that's one of the reasons that's documented most highly in people asking for assisted suicide. It's not the only reason, but becoming a burden or being a burden is something that they do find upsetting. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose I would be concerned that if um, we made it legal, then we would suddenly have a duty as a doctor to explain that that's a possibility. So your ordinary person coming to your clinic, you know, asking about what the options are and you're explaining about pain relief or palliative chemotherapy, maybe a dose of radiotherapy. And then you'd have to say, but, but actually there's also an option that you could choose to end your own life. And I think folk who've never even considered it would suddenly think, you know, that would be real release. And it would help folk like my daughter who doesn't want to take time off work and, you know, folk who don't want to visit from far away. And I just think they would get the impression that they weren't really valued by us as a society. And I guess I'm concerned about that. Um, so both those aspects of absolute involuntary um, in, in euthanasia, um, but also of, of, of perhaps more subtle pressure. Um, Julian, we're going to take a break just now and we'll be picking up uh, in the second half of this Carecast in just a few moments. Um, just to add to what you said as well, just really struck by that fear that you talked about, people afraid of being a burden. And, you know, I guess as, as a Christian public policy charity, um, we've often reflected on that fear of being a burden and what's a kind of Christian answer to that. And, and I often just think, do you know, I, I think a Christian response is to say, yeah, you, you, you might well be a burden, but that's okay because we, we're yeah. all a burden. Like we're all a burden in different ways at different stages yeah. in our life from, yeah. you know, when we're a crying baby and need everything done to us. And then that you come full circle and that may happen again at the end of your life or indeed at any stage. And it's a better story to say to people in those that situation, that's okay. We want to help you, love you, care for you. Um, yeah, really helpful. I agree. And I, I think one of the most rewarding aspects of palliative care actually is looking after people and their families because you see how, uh, not always, but a tremendous amount of families looking incredibly well after their loved ones. Um, and that's just a wonderful part of, of, of society um, that that might happen. Join us for Care Sessions, a series of online events helping you to effectively engage with and stand up for the issues that matter to you. Join us in March for two live Q&A sessions. To find out more and to register, visit our website, care.org.uk forward slash events. Spread the word and see you soon. Be part of Care's growing online community. Join our Facebook page for fresh content, devotions and updates on our causes. Don't forget to join our regional groups to be closer to the matters that affect your part of the UK. Find us on Facebook at Care.org UK 
Welcome back, everyone, to the second half of this CareCast. Uh, my name's James. I'm the Head of Communications at Care. And with me today on the CareCast is Dr. Gillian Wright, a researcher for the coalition group Care Not Killing, uh, who are an umbrella organisation, uh, lots of different groups, part of that coalition, uh, opposed to any change in the law when it comes to assisted suicide and or euthanasia. Gillian, we're going to dive into evidence now because there are countries and states around the world where either euthanasia or assisted suicide already legal and as you think about the evidence from these different places how does it highlight some of the risks that are involved with any change in the law I think it I think it's very clear that when the law is changed then it almost inevitably leads to further changes down the line and I think you can consider somewhere like the Netherlands which brought in euthanasia about 20 years ago um, initially it was very stringent it was for um, people within who were suffering at the end of their lives it was for adults um, and now that has changed and so um, they brought in a protocol for disabled babies so it is possible now to have euthanasia for babies up to the age of one and um, who are profoundly disabled and that's that's called the Grunigan protocol um, they're currently discussing whether it could be for children under 12 um, and for adolescents it, it is possible um, and also there has been a change in the type of illness so initially it was mostly terminal illness but now it's possible for people with multiple pathologies so much more commonly the elderly and um, so maybe who would have some heart failure bad arthritis poor eyesight those kind of things um, and yeah it just that it's it's much easier easier to get euthanasia than it was before and also it's possible for psychiatric illness um, which it wasn't before and the same is true in Belgium um, there has been a real slippery slope I think you would um, have to argue that things have changed over the last um, 20 years and um, certainly there have been children under 12 who've been euthanized um, uh, people with uh, dementia and with depression um, and really these are the folks that you'd want to safeguard um, euthanasia or assisted suicide um, for and yet it's um, it's becoming much more common. One of my concerns is that assisted suicide legislation is potentially discriminatory. So for patients, for example, who have motor neuron disease, they are have can have extremely limited hand function and so aren't able to take the medication themselves. So if the law was such that assisted suicide was brought in, then those who campaign for end-of-life decisions for motor neuron patients wouldn't be allowed to access that. And so there would be immediately a campaign for euthanasia for um, motor neuron disease patients. And so my concern is that if you allow one aspect of taking life, if you like, or killing patients, then that will in, in turn open the door to others. Something that Care Not Killing uh, is in favour of, and certainly we at CARE, uh, working with politicians across the UK, have championed is palliative care and the importance of palliative care. Just for those listening who perhaps are uh, unaware of what palliative care is and what it seeks to do, could, could you just touch on, on that briefly? 
Absolutely, yes. Um, palliative care is really an approach, uh, a way of looking after patients in the last part of their life. So it can be just a few weeks, but it can be more than a year, um, depending on, on the diagnosis. So we would have looked after patients perhaps for a short time, maybe for pain control, and then they would have gone to the cancer specialists for a while and then perhaps come back to us. So it is a way of trying to look after the whole of the patient and, and their family as well. And so because of that, you, you try and look at different aspects. So not just looking after their physical symptoms, although those are really important and can comprise things like pain or breathlessness or poor mobility, but also looking after psychological symptoms. So maybe anxiety or depression and um, looking after their social situations. So perhaps enhancing access to benefits or looking at housing um, and Palliative care social workers are extremely important in the team um, and also dealing with spiritual aspects because questions of meaning and purpose in life and wondering about the value of life, those are really important questions and should be addressed by all palliative care professionals um, at as part of their assessments and management of patients um, facing, facing the end of their lives. Um, Palliative care is, is delivered by a number of different people, so um, it can be delivered in the community. A great deal is delivered in the community by GPs and district nurses, but they do other jobs as well. They obviously do you know, look after babies and um, orthopaedics, all sorts of other things. So they're the general team, if you like. And you also get a specialist palliative care team. So that's who we think of in terms of Macmillan nurses or specialist palliative care doctors. Um, and they can be based either in the hospitals, so uh, as a specialist team, or they can be based in hospices, which is what most of us imagine, I imagine, think of as palliative care. But it's actually only part of palliative care. Um, and hospices are just wonderful places to work. Um, and they're a real team effort. Um, and I great way of of super nursing care really good problem solving um and and support for for families we don't get it right every time and there's not always perfect access and things are not always perfect but as a model it's it's a really good model of care um and it really was pioneered in the uk and some of you may have heard of dame cicely saunders and she was just a a great shining light, um, a visionary, if you like, for palliative care. She initially was a social worker and then was a nurse and then a doctor. So she was like a multidisciplinary team all by herself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she was great. Yeah, really good. And of course, one of the, the powers of palliative care is that it, it can be and is effective uh, in terms of pain control and pain management because I think that's often the, the kind of the point that people need to be reminded of that, that this isn't just some kind of airy-fairy you know yeah. nice talking um, but actually it, it works doesn't it? Yeah absolutely and I think um, I think there's an enormous amount of good that you can do with palliative care and actually quite often when patients used to come into the hospice I, I wouldn't always change their medications in the first 24 or 40 hours because there's just a relief at being there that often reduced their pain um, and one of the things that they often talked about was that they felt safe and um, whereas they'd been really anxious at home and that was a real that was a real joy actually to um, have people feel safe because the nurses were looking after them they knew where they were and it's not for everybody so some, some people would rather um, be at home. They want to be at home in their own house um, with their cat and their dog and, you know, whatever. But it's 
it's possible now to do both. Um, it's it's you don't want to be misleading. Some symptoms in palliative medicine are very very difficult to manage, um, but they are the exception. Um, there are some people who have very difficult times, um, but the majority of symptoms can be managed incredibly well and um, we should be, be able to reassure people about that. Um, but also we need to give people access to that. So I think there's a real burden or drive that this debate should be contributing to is that there should be excellent uh, and good access to palliative care. Um, the UK is good in terms of worldwide, um, but it could be better. Uh, and yeah, it could be better. We could have more education, we could have more research um, going on into these difficult symptoms. I think I read recently that there's 0.2%, so yeah, 0.2% yeah, of all research budgets in, in the UK on health are on palliative care, which, you know, is, is, is really small. Um, and if, if some of, of that balance was redressed and it was going into um, you know, new painkillers, that sort of stuff, um, which is going on in really good departments, like in Edinburgh, actually, I might even, I might even grant um, that there's, there's a fabulous um, palliative medicine research unit in Edinburgh. But yeah, so there, there's lots that can be done. Um, it doesn't need to just be palliative, um, it doesn't need to just be assisted suicide. Want to see more on CARE's work? Join us on YouTube for our live stream devotions, parliamentary updates and in-depth discussions on our causes. Remember to subscribe for the latest video content direct to your devices. Get more from CARE. Just search CARE Org UK. Gillian, we're just running um, nearly out of time, but I, I, I do want to finish by just getting practical for people who are listening or, or watching on YouTube. Um, it's really important that people engage with their politicians on these kind of issues, particularly as it looks like there could be votes happening uh, in the Scottish Parliament after the election, whether that's in May or, or later. And also down at Westminster as well, there's always a possibility of a vote coming. So just as people uh, think about engaging with their MP or maybe their member of the Scottish Parliament uh, on this particular cause, just some practical pointers uh, just as we bring this to a close. I, I think that's really important. I think the, the main thing is to, to do it. I think um, it's quite a daunting thing to speak to somebody in authority. Um, but I, I would really encourage you to, to take the opportunity. The times I have, I've always been really encouraged how how willing they were to listen and how helpful they were, actually. Um, so I would really just encourage you to, to, to take that opportunity to either to email or to go and, when circumstances permit, to talk to them in person or to, to do a Zoom, Zoom call at the moment. Um, I think if you can explain your concerns, ask them questions, perhaps tell them about your family situation, if it's um, pertinent, um, your experience of good palliative care or your concerns about the lack of access to palliative care. Um, and those are issues which which can be addressed. Um, I think CARE is doing a, a fantastic job. I think really getting informed about the different developments that are ongoing at the moment, um, knowing when things are happening, knowing about practical things that are happening is really important. And I think um, supporting CARE in that way is, is really helpful. Um, and yeah, absolutely, we're just keen to, keen to support that. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, uh, if you do want to find out more about some of the uh, 
question some of the things that uh, Gillian has talked about uh, and that we've discussed on this CareCast, then I really would encourage you to go to the CARE website, care.org.uk. If you find our cause section, there's an entire cause that's uh, all about end of life and you'll find resources, you'll find uh, a raft of different content uh, from facts and figures, as well as arguments both for and against to help you understand where different groups are coming from. So please do go to care.org.uk to find out more about this cause. Uh, Gillian, thank you so much uh, for the work that you're doing and for giving us your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Carecast. Remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes and find out more about the work of care on care.org.uk. Care for what you believe.